the next major challenge he has is to sort of figure out how AOL fits in the whole mix. That is something I wrestled with for six years, and I'm still not sure I got it right. I think the company's actually in pretty good shape, and people feel pretty good about being there, and its prospects are bright. Coming up, Ariane talks with former Time Warner CEO Richard Parsons, next on Change Nation from the first 30 days. Richard Parsons is no stranger to change. He's been many things, a basketball player, a lawyer, a banker, a global media executive, a winemaker, a father, most recently a grandfather and a jazz musician. As the CEO of Time Warner, he made significant changes to improve the financial standing of the company. He stepped down in late 2007 and now serves as chairman of the board. Since then, he's been navigating a new period in his life of pursuing dreams, of thinking about what his next change might be. He's also an investor in this company, The First 30 Days. Dick joins me here today on Change Nation to talk about life, all of these changes, and what he's thinking about doing next. Dick, I'm so thrilled to welcome you to the show. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Dick, you grew up in Brooklyn, went to college in Hawaii, graduated top of your class from law school, worked for the Rockefellers, then in banking, and then as a senior White House aide under President Ford. You then made it all the way to being the head of a gigantic media company, so I would assume that you were good at change. Would you agree with that? Well, I tolerate change well, and it doesn't intimidate me. So uh, how good I am at it, I don't know. But I I know that it doesn't intimidate me to move into a new circumstance or situation and take a shot, right? Did you go after the new opportunities, or do you think they came to you? Did you attract them towards yourself? Yeah, that's... Well, those are three good questions. Um, I didn't really go after them, per se. I mean, I, I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. Uh, and opportunities, like they do for most people, sort of float in front of you. And it's a question of whether you reach out and try and grab one of those things because for that moment in time, it looks attractive or it, it has um, attractive aspects to it. And that's more of how I sort of navigated by by opportunities that were presented to me or that, to use your expression, I somehow attracted to myself and then went for. Do you think that you were driven by a certain theme? Was no. there a reason why you worked so hard to get to where you were? Or Well, again, sort of two different questions. I, I, I I'm not a particularly ambitious person, believe it or not, and I'm and I'm certainly not a driven person. Um, I am a hard worker because I I think it's a combination of temperament and early training. You know, I was always told by my parents that you know uh, luck was the residue of, of hard work. The harder you work, the luckier you get, and and it's just my temperament. So I was a hard worker. Uh, and I always was interested in things that created new options as opposed to shut down options. So uh, it's more serendipitous and 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 happenstance than planful. My career. Why? What made you want to work so hard? I think a lot of people are lazy and want to do other things. You well, I think you know I, that may be or may not be. Um, I, I think it is. It is a question of, of both temperament and self. 
um, one's sense of self. Uh, I don't – well, I said earlier, I'm not terribly ambitious. I suppose I am terribly competitive. If I'm going to do something, I'm going to at least do it as well as I can. And if it's within my power, I'm going to do it better than anybody else can do it. Why do you think you're not ambitious? Why – well, because, as I said, none, none of this is a function of, of having set a goal or an objective or, or feeling that I needed to accomplish a certain set of things in order to feel a sense of self-worth that I, that, that I had fulfilled some mission. It's more uh, opportunistic and, and serendipitous. And then once I get into something, then, as I said, you know, once you're in it, you're in it to win it. So when you look back on your life personally, professionally – what do you think is one of the hardest changes you've had to face? Like something life threw at you and what helped you through it? Hmm. Um, those would all be things on the personal side, not the business side. And probably uh, the hardest adjustment that I had to make in my life was when my oldest daughter was born. My oldest daughter um, was born with what they call multiple congenital anomalies. And that was that was a shot to the gut. Um, and, however, in, in terms of sort of adjusting to that, taking that in, and then and then reprogramming um, yourself to deal with that new reality, it's it's essentially the same way you adjust to things that are less traumatic. At least it is for me. You kind of live with it for a while. You kind of um, walk yourself to the end of the line. You say, okay, so what? What could happen here? What's the worst case? And then if you see, see if you can live with that. And if you can, um, then it makes it possible to live with whatever is short of that. What would you tell parents who are listening who might have a similar situation with a child? I yeah. don't know how old your daughter is now, but what would you tell them? Well, um, I mean, the good news is my daughter is now 33 years old. She is um, uh, lives independently um, and is and is one of the most not only delightful but um, admirable people I know. She is a she's a a toughie, but a sweetie at the same time. And what I would say to parents, and what we learned, uh, her mother and I, when she was born, is that there are literally scores and scores of people, and people you know, who have who are dealing with the same thing or have dealt with the same thing. There's a whole community of people out there who reach out and uh, and help you through. Uh, I was just amazed at the number of people who I, who I knew, but I, I didn't know that much about their, their family circumstances or background who had either children with uh, handicapping conditions or siblings with handicapping conditions or themselves had, uh, had endured handicapping conditions on the way up. And they formed a, a community of, of of supporters and friends where, where you could sort of share your fears um, and and understand that this isn't the end of life, that, that, that human beings are equipped to not only endure these things but overcome these things and ultimately even even rejoice in some of these differences. And that was very helpful in the early in the early going. Talking about family, given the big changes that have happened in the last few months for you, stepping down as, as CEO of Time Warner, what would your wife and kids recommend or think you should be doing now with the next phase of your life? 
Uh, my wife would probably put me on a path that's far more ambitious and, and require more more uh, uh, commitment and energy than I would put myself on uh, or I'd wish upon myself. My kids are interesting. My son, um, who is a fairly thoughtful young man, um, summed it up this way. He said, when he asked me, he said, what are you going to do next, Dad? I said, well, I don't know. He said, well, don't worry. It'll find you. And I think that's where... Uh, all of my children would be. They, they have, they're all in their thirties now. They have their own lives and their own challenges that they're sort of stepping up to and focused on. And it's not been their experience to worry too much about what happens to dad because he seems to stumble ahead, um, and find his own way in life. And so, and they would be reasonably confident that whatever comes next, it'll find me. Um, so I don't get a lot of second order questions from them. And I, I, I just try and defend myself from my wife who has a whole list of things that she would have me do. There have been several people who suggested that I should go into public office, even elected public office. She seems to think that would be a good idea. I'm not persuaded that it is. Um, but she's a very dutiful and, and, and responsible person. And her view is, you know, you have a responsibility to do something for, you know, others. And so that would be a good way to do it. That's... Just an example. Then, of course, there's the domestic list of the honeydews, as we call them. Of course. Uh, we don't need to get into that, though. So, Dick, let's think back to what the first 30 days after leaving the position as CEO was like. Do you remember what was that, that was like? Do you remember how you felt when you got up in the morning and sure, things, had, was, things had changed? Because it was only 60 days ago that it yes. started. Um, Things did change, but this this is one of those life changes that was not unanticipated. This actually has been something that's been on my mind for the last half a dozen years and um, has been in some form of 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 planning for at least the and pretty specific and detailed planning at least the last two years. So that when the transition came, it was not abrupt or unanticipated, but it still was nice. Uh, as you say, when you woke up on the 1st of January to know that certain things that perforce occupied your mind and therefore your day uh, in the past in terms of looking after the 100,000, you know, sort of men and women who make up Time Warner weren't your primary responsibility anymore. It doesn't mean you don't didn't care about them or you could completely uh, unplug from that experience, but you had a recognition that, you know, that's not my job anymore, and I can start thinking about what's next, and um, and taking some some small amount of, of more than comfort, even pride in the fact that I think we left the company in pretty good shape, and I know we left the company in pretty good hands. So you know, what's been the hardest part since you left? It hasn't been a hard part. It hasn't been a hard part. It's been our transition because we did we spent a lot of time planning. It has gone very well. Probably the. The thing that's been a, a bit of a surprise is that you really – simply stepping down isn't enough. I mean, you really have to forcibly almost remove yourself from some things because, uh, you know, inertia, body in motion tends to stay in motion, right? If you don't do something different, other folks won't assume that there's anything different going on. And so they still come into your office and you still get, you know, 5,000 emails a day and blah, 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 blah. So I've had to tell my secretary – that starting April first, you know, I'm not, I'm not coming into the office on the first uh, on Mondays or Fridays, because you have to force that kind of change in order to, to really get into a different groove. 
Was there one piece of advice that you gave to Jeff Bukes, the new CEO, when you did the handover? Do what's right. So when you look back on your tenure as CEO, what do you think is the best change that you made for the company? Well, probably the best change was just, you know, we, we I became CEO on, the, on sort of the back of a of a of a merger of two very different cultures, two very different companies, you know, sort of a new technology company and the traditional uh, Time Warner Media properties, and with with different cultures, different um, perspectives on how you pursue the business, and and different personality types even, and uh, so there was there was you know, almost you know, an open range war going on between the the, the cattle. Men and, and 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 the sheep herders uh, within our shop, and over the course of time, we were able to sort of get that settled down and get people focused back on pursuing the business, whether it was new technology or the old media businesses, um, and to start to regain a sense of pride in their company. I think that's important. I think people want to be in a place where um, where they not only enjoy and have respect and admiration for their colleagues, but they feel good about what they're doing and they feel good about the enterprise. So I think we've restored a sense of, uh, of pride in, in place and in, and in, and in activity. And, uh, and then there were a lot of other sort of issues dogging the heels of the company, a lot of government investigations and shareholder suits and investor unrest. And we sort of got all that squared away or settled down. So that, that even though it's not, the stock isn't exactly where I'd want to see it because nobody's is in today's marketplace. But, uh, but I think the company's actually in pretty good shape, and people feel pretty good about being there, and and its prospects are bright. So, when you think, is there a decision that you're most proud of that you took while you were there? I guess I would say the the decision that I think was the best decision, and therefore. Um, I don't tend to think in terms of having pride around these things, but it certainly was the best decision I made was to uh, uh, promote two of my colleagues, a man named Don Logan and another fellow named Jeff Bukas, who is now the CEO of the company, uh, out of their division roles and bring them up to corporate because that sent – it did a number of things. They were very competent, um, highly principled, and much respected uh, managers and leaders within our company. And by putting them into visible positions of, of, of authority to help me run the company, it sent all the right messages to the troops that we were serious about, you know, sort of focusing on the business, that we were serious about recognizing and elevating competence and real talent. And it also sent a signal in terms of the direction we'd be going in because these were sort of my colleagues from the traditional sides of the business and which had been feeling kind of under siege. Uh, and... I said at the time I thought it would be the best decision I'd make as CEO, and I still think it was. When you look at the future of Time Warner, do you get a sense of what changes the company still needs to make? Yeah, you know, times change, and 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 companies like people have to change with changing times. I I, I do think, from uh, an investor perspective, um, large conglomerated. Even even conglomerations of related entities like Time Warner, all media companies, are in and the, the global are increasingly hard to understand. And so, I think one of the things Jeff is wrestling with is how to 
make the company from an investor perspective more uh, uh, user-friendly. And so he's already talked about um, perhaps separating the cable company, which is basically a distribution platform, from the rest of the company, which is basically a content creation uh, company. That's something he and I had talked about even before I left. And I, I think in the fullness of time, you'll see that happen. And the next major challenge he has is to sort of figure out how um, how AOL fits in the whole mix. I mean, that's that is something I wrestled with for six years, and I'm still not sure I got it right. And so he's he's still got a little work to do there. But he's a smart he's a smarter guy than I am. So I wish him luck. What do you feel you would give as advice to CEOs or even the public at large with so much change going on, whether it's in the economy, whether it's politically, whether it's in the environment? Is embracing change, getting good at change, facing change, is that the key skill? Well, it's certainly one of them um, because change is inevitable. I mean, you see uh, people make these little sayings that they encase in plastic and you put it on your desk. The only thing that is uh, certain is change, right? Change happens and it's going to happen and there's not much you can do about it except adjust, right? Accommodate and adjust. I think I, I think that it's in the human equation to um, in sort of the DNA and the makeup of, of people to fear two things. One is change and the other is failure. And they're related obviously. Uh, because once you once you master a skill um, or get comfortable with a set of activities and comfortable that you're succeeding at it, change brings about the potential for failure at whatever is next. And I guess my advice to people, well, certainly to CEOs and to uh, and to people in general, is understand that change is inevitable. Um, I don't even say change is good or change is bad. Change is inevitable. Change just is. And understand that going in and don't fear failure. So on that point of failure, is there a failure that in some ways you're happy happened in your life because it taught you a lot and you went for it? Well, I don't know that any particular failure taught me something, but a number of failures, which I can look back upon with some degree of uh, uh, chagrin, I suppose, uh, but maybe not – Having failed at a number of things has taught me not to be afraid of failure. Uh, in in fact, uh, as I once told uh, my the senior managers at Time Warner, I said, I, I am where I am today because I failed at the things that I wanted to do when I was younger. I, no, so I, give me an example. Well, you mentioned earlier I was a basketball player. Um, I thought I was going to be a professional athlete. Well, guess what? <laughs> that that just happened not to be my my deep skill set. Uh, I love music, and particularly jazz. I thought I was, could be maybe a professional musician. Uh, and if I had the skill, I would have been. But I just didn't have the skills. I tried, and I, I you know I got some distance down the road. But but in terms of achieving my ultimate objective, I, I failed. But what you find out is that you know you you gave it the shot, and and. Even if you might fail to achieve this objective, new opportunities open up. Uh, uh, new options become available to you, and you just keep moving forward. That's my favorite expression. You know, just keep putting one foot in front of the other. Uh, and failure, per se, um, 
it just means you failed to achieve or you didn't achieve the thing you set out to achieve, but you may end up achieving something even more valuable because you're on the road, you got your feet moving, and these opportunities are coming and you're grabbing them. What's the change been like to taking more of a backseat as chairman of the company? I would not say that it was an entirely smooth passage, that there are no ripples in the water. It certainly has not been tumultuous uh, or, or in, any, in any deep sense unsettling. But it is hard sometimes to sit and watch things happen, particularly if they're happening to people who are your colleagues, that you're powerless to intervene or you've rendered yourself powerless to intervene because you have to get out of the way of the new guy. So it's it's you know I can see why many people when they leave they literally leave so they 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 can remain unaware of what's happening to the shop because they have no ability to affect it any longer and they don't necessarily want to run into the people in the elevators who are looking at them saying you know but this would never have happened if you were still here. However, we as part of our transition planning, you know, we, we sort of thought this thing through. We think we're on the right path. Uh, I try and stay out of Jeff's way in terms of the operation of the business, but be available to him to counsel and to advise on things that he seeks counsel and advice on and to work with him on making sure the board is informed and supportive and is feeling comfortable in the direction that the new leader is taking the company. I want to switch gears a bit. This is a question I've been wanting to ask. If you sat next to someone on a plane, they didn't know who you were and stranger, and they said, so what do you do? What do you answer nowadays? Good question. Although that would have been a good question even before nowadays because I was trained as and started out, spent the first almost 20 years of my life as a lawyer, and that's how I thought about myself. So in the old days when I was still practicing law and somebody said, what do you do? I would say, I'm a lawyer. Then I left and I went into banking, and I just never could get my head around saying I'm a banker because it wasn't my sense of self. So I never said that. And I would say I'm, I'm a business guy or I'm a broken-down former lawyer or something. I frumfer. And now that I'm in the media business, I, I used to say to people that, well, I'm a media uh, executive. But now I've gotten comfortable with the following. I tell people I'm a suit. When they say, what do you do? I say, I'm a suit. And they say, well, what's a suit? I say, well, a suit's a business guy who, you know, sort of isn't talent because in the media world, it's divided into two classes or species of, of, of human beings. You have suits and you have talent. The suits run the money and do the business and the talent stands in front of the camera or behind the microphone and conducts interviews or acts. Dick, what's one of the craziest jobs that you've been offered since you've left? Well, let's see. As someone asked me if, if I would be interested in that. Being the head football coach at Syracuse University, I thought that was interesting. If I wanted to go on television as a, uh, a commentator on one of these, you know, sort of morning business shows, I won't call the name because I don't want to get anybody in trouble, but that was another opportunity that came my way. The usual suspects, you know, teaching, taking over another Fortune 500, you know, or actually Fortune 50 large conglomerate. So all manner of things but none that, that I was particularly zeroing on. Right now, I have other things I'd like to do. What's the funniest, craziest rumor you've heard about yourself since you've left? Well, there's a persistent rumor that, that I'm going to run for mayor, which, which, as I told you a moment ago, is a highly unlikely proposition. Um, it's just not something I'm, uh, that I want to do at this stage of my life. Might you do it at a later stage in your life? I doubt it. I mean, I, I might have done it at an earlier stage in my life. I mean, that is a hard 
job. That's one of those jobs you put in the category. It's 100 hours a week. It's seven days, you know, 24-7, really. And you have to have a passion for it. You have to really derive what I call a lot of psychic income from being in that kind of position of authority, position of recognition, adulation, exposure, all that sort of stuff. None of that's seeming very attractive to me right at the moment. And I know that hard work has never scared you, and you've certainly had hard positions before that. Is there anything that would push you over the edge to do that if it was really a necessity and a responsibility? Here I am defending uh, your wife. I was going to say, <laughs> thank you very much. I can see you've been gotten to. You know, you can never say never. You, who knows what the future holds? As I survey my options at this point in time, that doesn't make the top 10 list. So what does make the top 10 list? Well, as you mentioned before, I'm a new grandfather, right? So I have, I have a responsibility there. So I spent, for example, this weekend I spent teaching my grandson. His name is Jack. Teaching Jack how to crawl because Jack's parents, you know, the, the new vogue with young parents is you don't let an infant sleep on their stomach. You put them on their back because of SIDS and all that. I don't know if there's any real science around it, but that's what all the pediatricians say. So nobody puts the kid on their stomach anymore, and these kids don't know how to crawl. So I had to get down on my hands and knees and work with Jack. So he's eight months old now. He should be crawling. So this is going to take some time being a grandfather. I don't know if I've talked to you about it before, but I... I uh, doing something like you're doing right now. I'm talking to some people here in town about being a disc jockey, having a, a late evening, probably Sunday evening jazz program, which I think would just be a hoot. I mean, I would have enormous fun with that. I am going to do a little teaching, probably down at Howard University, where I've been on the board for any number of years, because I think something that, you know, I can bring some tales from the field around leadership. And I think leadership is something that is undertaught, particularly in our finishing schools in this country. So I think that would be fun. But none of these are full-time gigs. And then, of course, I have more time now to look after my vineyard in Italy and, frankly, learn more about the art of making wine. I mean, we make a pretty good wine now, and I've been involved on the periphery, but now I'd like to sort of get more deeply involved. So I have a few things that, uh, that are going to take some time in the short term. And in the longer term, I just would like to, you know, have some period of time where I was out of the pressure cooker to think about whether to get back into another pressure cooker, and if so, which one. I want to talk more about wine, of course. Wine. So the vineyard in Italy, did it find you? Did you find it? No, I found it. You found it. I found it. And how has this vineyard changed how you see life, philosophy of life, the Italians, food? Well, you know, it's interesting. It's a, it's, it's, the, the question is well phrased because the Italians – they're an interest, it's an interesting country. They're interesting people. Uh, not necessarily known for their efficiency or you know, sort of effectiveness at, at, at implementing business strategies or any of that sort of thing. But I don't know, maybe 2,000 years ago, they mastered the art of just living, of living well, of, of focusing on the things in life that are truly important, the relationships with other people, good food, including good wine, and just enjoying the, the blessings of a day, the things that money can't buy. And I really plugged into that. Um, you go over to Italy and, and you can, you know, you, you don't have but a couple of decisions to make every day, like where am I going to have lunch <laughs> and where am I going to have dinner? And the rest of the day you're with What your, time do I get up? That's right. You're with, well, you get up when you get up, right? That's not a decision. With your friends, you're – you're enjoying their company. You're enjoying the beauty of Tuscany. You're enjoying a nice glass of wine or 
wonderful dish of pasta. It's otherworldly for someone who was born and raised and lives and works in New York City. Do you think that made you be a better suit, a better business person? No, it made me a happier person. It made me a more contented person with my life. I'm, it didn't – it really – you know, it's possible that, that, that some decisions I've made since having this experience were different than if I hadn't had it. I'm not aware of any of those. But I've, I've just been more at peace with my soul. Are you thinking, contemplating about capturing your life, your experiences in, in a book? Thinking about it. Would it be something you'd do alone? Would you do it with someone? Well, I, th- I think if I, if I take a shot, and I'm leaning in that direction because, to me, the absolute touchstone of the sine qua non would, be, it would have to be funny. It would have to make people laugh. This is not an instructional manual or even a serious sort of reflective piece of these are the, you know, what I've learned about life. It would just be more a collection of recollections around things that have happened that were just flat humorous in my life, some interesting. And I would probably take a shot. I'd probably take a shot at doing it on my own because hard for somebody else to speak in your voice. And I used to be able to back in the day when I was still a lawyer, I used to be able to write. So it would be good to try and exercise those muscles again. Would you go to Italy to write? Actually, probably not. I'm thinking about going to Block Island. What's a new skill that you would love to acquire, learn in this new young phase of your life? Because as you said, you haven't grown up yet, so anything's possible. You know, I periodically think about trying another musical instrument. I played several, and in a workmanlike way, but never anything remotely well enough to think about, not even trying to make a living, but trying to, to be a part of a group or something and not embarrass yourself. I've thought about harmonica. You don't have one in your pocket, do you? I don't have one in my pocket, but I've got four at home because they come in four different keys. So I've been fiddling around with the harmonica a bit. And then I've got to, you know, I realize I've got to burnish, if you will, my technical skills, my online skills, because I've, you know, I'm I'm not as as deep a user of all this new digital availability and technology and internet as I will need to be going forward. Dick, I know one thing about you. You're very involved in charities and committed to various causes. I don't know if you have a foundation as well. Is that something that you want to spend more time on? Do you want to do some new things in that area? Funny you should mention that. Yeah, we do have we have a family foundation. And it was originally um, – I originally set it up because I wanted a, a vehicle that would enable my wife and me to interact with our children – in a, in a somewhat thoughtful way around the notions of philanthropy and charity and justice and giving back. And it's it's served that purpose. So everybody gets a certain level of support and they have to go out and think through, what should I do with this? And then come and effectively justify it before the group. Now, we never, almost never turn anybody down. When I say turn anybody down, I don't, I don't mean grantees, but I mean any of the kids, because we just want to make sure they've thought about it and they have some rationale. You know, I've sort of ceded that more to my wife's leadership than my own. I remain involved with a number of um, educational institutions and would intend to do so. But at the moment, I'm just thinking about, I'll put it that way, the opportunity, whether I should take whatever limited skills I have and apply it in that space, in the nonprofit philanthropic space, as opposed to doing something else. It's possible. Is there a a cause or an issue that worries you the most? Well, there's one that engages me the most, and that's uh, education. You know, I'm a product of of, of New York City public school education, and and I'm convinced that 
the reason my lot in life was different from my father's or from his father's was, you know, the country changed somewhat, but also I had an education. That's that's the ticket. That's the key now. And uh, you see so many people who are who are exposed to our educational institutions who don't get an education that you wonder about not only what's going to happen to them, but why that happened in the first place. So making public education more effective for more people is something I have a lot of passion around. Whether it's an education or really any of the the issues that the country faces, are you optimistic? Are you realistic? Are you where where are you at? Yeah, fundamentally, I'm an optimist. Fundamentally, um, you know, I, I hear so many of my contemporaries say lament the fact that you know we're the last generation of Americans for whom life was better than their parents. You know, that was always the American dream. You want kids to have it, a better opportunity, better life, live in a better world than you did. Well, I don't believe that we that that is true. I think certainly my children have live in a more dynamic and opportunity-rich world than I grew up in, and I think that'll be true for their children. It doesn't mean that everything is on the plus side. I mean, Dickens probably had it right. We always live in the best of times and the worst of times. But I'm an optimist. I think I think people are actually becoming more civilized over time, less brutal, less destructive, and that if we can just sort of hang in here for a while, we might one of these days actually get it right. Dick, when you look at 2008 in your personal life going forward, if you had a theme for what you want 2008 to be about, you and I see each other again end of the year. Yeah. 2008 has been a theme of what? 2008 for me is going to be a theme of chilling and reflecting on future options. I'm trying desperately not to make any serious decisions in 2008 because I just I want to decompress and understand what options I have looking forward and then make it judgment toward the end of the year as opposed to early. Is there something that if you were speaking to a class of high school students or, or college students, as I know you would love and you'd be wonderful at, is there something you know now you wish someone had stood up in front of a classroom and said, you know what, just remember this, it's going to take you through life and I've got a couple more years ahead of you. What would you say? Yeah, it would be close to the advice that I gave Mr. Bucus when he picked up the baton and started his leg of the race. And don't ask me why it took me probably into my 50s to, to become secure in this. But at the end of the day, you know, all you can do is you can do the best you can and your orientation ought to be do what you think is right. If you do what you think is right and you do it as well as you can, you can always look at yourself in the mirror and, and be reasonably happy with what you see. The way we end off all our interviews here at Change Nation is we ask all our guests and experts to answer the same three questions. So regardless of their expertise or why they're here. Is this a test? Is this a test? I was told there wouldn't be any tests. It's not a test. Okay. So here they are. They're very quick. The first one is, what is the belief that you go to in times of change? That I can get through it. Fill in the sentence. The best thing about change is? It introduces something new. And here's the final one. What is the best change that you've ever made? Probably going from uh, a single rascal to a married gentleman. With lovely children and now a grandson. Dick, it's been a true pleasure. Thank you for joining us on, on the show. We we'll hope to have you back soon for more changes or anything that you're going to be up to in your extraordinary life. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. And for more changes, more experts, more interviews, please visit us at first30days.com. I'm Ariane, and thanks for listening. 
Thanks for listening to Change Nation from the first 30 days. Please visit us on iTunes in the Society and Culture podcast section under Philosophy. Remember to take time to leave us feedback about the show. We'd love to know what you think. Change Nation is a production of the First 30 Days LLC, copyright 2008, all rights reserved.